Anybody know where that phrase pearly gates comes from in the Bible? It actually is in the Bible. We tend to uh, think of it as sort of a cartoonish type figure, but it's later in Revelation 21 that we were just reading from. And it says, um, describes how the, uh, the New Jerusalem will be adorned as if uh, with, with different jewels and goes through all this list and then it says, and the 12 gates, 12 places around this city. By the way, you know how big that city is? It's, it's about from uh, New York to um, uh, Denver. So just if you want to have some perspective of the new city of Jerusalem, it's defri- de- described as uh, 12,000 stadia. That's how big that is. Um, and the 12 gates were 12 pearls, it says in verse 21. Each of the gates made of a, a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. Now, I, I, think, uh, I think we come to these kind of visions of what heaven is, is like, what, uh, what the new Jerusalem is like, and they, they raise more questions than answers oftentimes for us. And, uh, and we, we have these visions of, of heaven maybe a little bit like Mark Twain described this. I've, I've said this before, so forgive me. But Mark Twain, in one of his short stories, said that uh, he viewed heaven a, a little bit like um, uh, small people with wings, uh, knee-deep in soggy clouds, with uh, singing tunes to harps that were, were untuned. Right? It's not much of a vision for, for, for hope and, and for a future. It's a, and I think that those types of visions, even sometimes when we sing these songs, Pearly Gates, they, kind of, they almost diminish our, um, our view and our hope, our, our, our expectation of heaven instead of, instead of elaborating it, which was, was the purpose of Revelation and that, that whole vision. So last week... Um, last week I said we, we talked about the crucifixion. This week I want to talk briefly about the resurrection. And to do that, I, I want to use a passage from Luke chapter 24. If you uh, have a Bible and want to read along, you can turn to Luke 24, and we'll start with verse 36. If you want to read in the, uh, the Bibles, we have some Bibles on the chairs. Um, there's a page number in the bulletin if you need to find it. I want to look at what the resurrection of Jesus means for how we view the future, how we, how we hope, what we hope for, what we long for, because the crucifixion is, it has called us to this kind of radically different life, but the resurrection is what seals the deal. It's what gives us that hope that what Jesus did on the cross actually will, will bear out. It's, it's, it's leading to something. It's it's not just the end. Even though he said it was finished in terms of paying the penalty for sin, the rest of the story is certainly not finished because it's a whole new life that's been opened up to us. So let's read this passage from, Revel- excuse me, from Luke, chapter 24, verse 36, and we'll read to, to verse 49. As soon as, excuse me, As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them 
and said to them, peace to you. All right, stop. Before we go on, we have to know who he's standing among and why all of a sudden he showed up. Jesus had been crucified on Friday. Saturday had passed. Sunday morning, most of you know the story that some of the women who had followed Jesus went to the tomb to anoint his body with, with oils as, as was customary uh, in that time to, to treat a, the dead body. And they, instead of having the soldiers there roll away the stone for them to go in to, to, to do this, they found that the stone was gone. And Jesus was gone. And two angels came and appeared to them and said that Jesus wasn't there. And so they went back and disciples came and and this whole thing goes along and and Jesus appears to various people on that day. And Luke records one of these appearances when he says that some of the disciples, two of these disciples, not of the twelve, but one of them was called uh, Cleopas and, and another person are walking on a road to the town of Emmaus. And Emmaus is about three miles, three or four miles away from where Jesus was buried and on the way, this man comes up and walks with them. And he just appears like a human being. And he pretends to not know what was going on in the city. And the man, of course, turns out to be Jesus. And after Jesus had entered into a house with them to eat with them, and he breaks bread and he blesses it, he vanishes in thin air. And so they do what everybody's going to do. They run back to Jerusalem. And they go and tell the disciples, who are probably still gathered in the upper room where Jesus had the last supper with them. They gathered back in that place, maybe someplace else. And as these two people are talking with them, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands, my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish. And he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the whole of the Old Testament, that is the the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer on the third Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you now, as Jesus, as it says to the disciples, open our minds to understand your scriptures. And that we would understand what the resurrection means and also what it means for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Did you read over the, the first thing that Jesus says here without much thought? What was the first thing he said? Peace to you. You know, it's, it's kind of easy for us to read over it. It's a, it was a typical greeting in the Middle East. We still offer the peace to one another oftentimes. But this would not have escaped the disciples when Jesus said, Peace to you. Because the disciples, part of their, their amazement, part of their disbelief for joy, right? Their disbelief for joy. Let me let them come on in. No problem. Good to see you. Hey, Linda. The disciples, part of their disbelief for joy was surely that after after they had fallen away, after they, many of them, had, had said, I don't know, I don't know this man, Jesus. Right? The chief of which was Peter. Peter, who Jesus said, Peter, you're one of my, my three inner circle. I, I love you. You're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows tonight. And Peter said... No, Lord, I would never deny you. No matter what, I would never deny you. And sure enough, when he's approached by a servant girl standing there kind of in the shadows, she says, you were with him, weren't you? He says, no, it wasn't me. And he continues on and denies that he even knew Jesus because he wasn't sure what to think. He wasn't sure if Jesus was really going to be victorious or not. And he was afraid And Jesus comes to Peter and says, peace to you. Meaning, our relationship is reconciled. Even though you denied me, I still love you. And he takes it even further. He pulls Peter aside later. And we find in John that that Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yeah, of course I love you. Jesus says, if you love me, feed my lambs. And as if to say, you denied me three times, and so I'm going to affirm that I love you three times. He asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? He says, yes, I love you. And Jesus says, feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Feed my lambs. As if to say, you didn't love me, but I still loved you. And I've called you back to me. And I'm still going to choose to use you in my kingdom work. He says the same thing to all of us. When we've denied him in the past, we said, I don't really believe 
who you say, who you say you are, what you say you're going to do, and we deny him and we deny him and we deny him, Jesus keeps saying, do you love me? And we say, yes, we love you. And Jesus says, then I'm going to continue to use you to accomplish my purposes, to do my will on earth until the fullness of my kingdom comes. And so he says to each of us, peace to you. And that's a great greeting. Jesus says to you, if you forgive, confessed your sins and received his forgiveness early in the service, he says, peace to you. I am going to use you. Now, I know that you have doubts and I know that you have questions. And so now let me answer your questions. Let me tell you more about what the resurrection means in your life. Because if you understand what the fullness of the resurrection is in Jesus it will transform your life in a similar way to how it transformed Peter's life and the other disciples who couldn't even go out of the house after Jesus' crucifixion. Who were afraid, really, oftentimes to leave his presence when they were being taught by Jesus and walking with him and now are enabled to go to Jerusalem place where the Jews hated them, the Jewish leaders, that is, to the surrounding regions, and even to the ends of the earth, the other nations, to proclaim the good news of the gospel. How can, how can the truth of the resurrection transform our lives? And I think to answer that, we have to understand something about what the resurrection is from this passage, and then also what it means for our lives. The resurrection. What is the resurrection? First, the resurrection is physical and real. The resurrection is physical and real. I told you earlier that Cleopas mistook Jesus as just an ordinary man. He looked like a physical human being. In in another account, in Matthew... We find that some of the women who went to the garden went off to to the side and went to who they thought was a gardener and asked him, what happened to Jesus? What happened here? And we learn later that this man was, of course, Jesus. And so in two occasions, we see that, that Jesus is actually mistaken for an ordinary human being as if I was standing there, Nick was standing there, or Glenn was standing there. And what's more, Jesus, when he comes into this room with his disciples and they're saying, thank you for the peace, but what does this mean? And what, what a, who are you? What are you? Are you a spirit? And Jesus says, no, I'm not a spirit. Look at the physical wounds on my hand and feet. And not just that, but grab on to me. And you can't grab on to a spirit. Your hand would just go straight through it. Grab on to me. And feel that I am real. Touch it really doesn't do do justice to the word here. It's it's literally grasp on to, hold on to it. And feel that I have physical flesh and bones. In verse 39. And if that wasn't enough. He says, I'm hungry. Do you have something to give me to eat? And they said, yeah, here's some fish. And he eats it. And it doesn't just drop to the floor. 
as if through a ghost, but it actually digests in his body. He consumes physical food. The, the resurrection, Jesus wants us to know right away, is a very physical and real thing. It is something that we can grab onto, we can touch, we can hold. His body was raised from the dead, but it wasn't just physical and real. The resurrection is something better than what it was before. And in fact, it's actually the joining together. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the joining together of heaven and earth in a way that is, is predictive for the way heaven and earth are going to be joined together when the truth of Revelation 21 comes up. You, you know what else it says in Revelation 21? If you want to, you can turn back there. I want, I want to read this about, about what happens to heaven in Revelation 21. We've read this before, and I can't emphasize it enough. I mean, this changes the whole way we view uh, life now and life in the future forevermore. Starting with verse 9, where we left off before. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me. Come, and I will show you the bride. Who's the bride? It's all the people of God living in the heavenly Jerusalem the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem. And what was the city, Jerusalem, doing? It's coming out of the sky. We talked about in Galatians, right? The heavenly Jerusalem. The difference between the heavenly Jerusalem and the earthly Jerusalem. Galatians is speaking of the heavenly Jerusalem. Here in Revelation, we hear of the heavenly Jerusalem where Christ's bride is here and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. And it goes on to describe the city with language of jewels, the city being made out of jewels and gold and all of these things that are too great to imagine. Now, a lot of that is metaphorical pictures, but the glory of the city is not metaphorical. The amazing picture of heaven where the saints are, where the children of God are, where the bride of Christ is coming out of heaven and it's literally merged, it's fused with earth. The two are inseparable and Jesus' body is a merging of heaven and earth in something that is inseparable. Jesus' body has characteristics that are still true of, of a, a physical body. It's a physical thing that you can touch, but it's an even greater body that, that, you know, when we read things like him disappearing and then reappearing as if it was something out of a, a Star Trek, literally, right? Just, it comes out, all of a sudden he appears and then he vanishes, and yet it's a physical body. It's not just a ghost. This is amazing stuff that really in some ways is, is beyond our grasp. And yet in some ways, God wants us to open our minds to consider the possibility of this heavenly, this, this new body that Jesus has 
and that we will have as being something far greater than the body we have right now. There were other people who Jesus raised from the dead. He raised his friend Lazarus shortly before he was going to be crucified. But Lazarus, anybody seen him recently? (laughs) He still died. He raised this, this man, Jairus, had a daughter, and he raised her from the dead. Everybody laughed at Jesus. Said, she's dead. How are you going to make her wake up? None of us have seen Jairus' daughter either because she's dead as well. They didn't receive the new bodies that Jesus received when he was raised from the dead. He has what Paul actually calls a spiritual body. In 1 Corinthians 15, if, if any of you are suffering, any of you have experienced difficulty in this life, have experienced sickness in your body, or, or even near-death experiences, then read 1 Corinthians 15 and what the promise of the resurrection of Christ means for us. He begins this chapter, verse 3, he said, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Wow, you notice how often they say this all in accordance with the Scriptures? He's talking about the Old Testament. All this stuff was predicted in the Old Testament, that Jesus would die in accordance with the Scriptures, that he would be dead and buried, and then would rise from the dead in accordance with the Scriptures. And then it talks about him also appearing to to Cephas or Peter, uh, and then to the Twelve, and appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. And he goes on to describe the mystery of this resurrection. And he says that, that our bodies now, our physical bodies now, are but a, a, a seed that gets planted in the ground and sprouts up into something much greater for the resurrection body that we will each have. Jesus' physical body was, was but a seed, was planted planted in the ground, and grew up into his resurrected body that was far greater body. And I wish I could read the whole chapter, but let me just read you from verse 50 to 55. He says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Right? Open your minds here. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, meaning that... Jesus will come back and some people will not physically die. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, this is when Jesus returns, at the last trumpet, the the topic of Revelation, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall all be changed For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality, 
Then shall come to pass the saying that is written. And this is the good news of the gospel. I mean, this is what we hope in for the resurrection. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Earlier, Paul used even the language of the new physical body being a spiritual body, not made out of the same type of flesh and blood that this body is, but a new type of flesh and blood. It's not to say that the new body is going to be a spirit, or think about that, a spiritual body. A body actually requires something that you can touch, feel, hold on to, grasp onto. To say that we're just all going to become spirits is to reject the idea that we will receive a spiritual body. Verse 44, it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. The spiritual body is not just our spirit, hanging out in clouds, soggy clouds at that, singing half-tuned songs to, to untuned instruments. It is actually a physical body that we will be able to touch and hold on to just as Jesus' resurrected body was an even greater body that the disciples could touch and hold on to, that everybody else recognized and even mistook for just another person walking along the road. All right, so this is what the spiritual body is, the, the hope that we have that it's going to be so much greater. But what does that mean for us? I mean, so what? We're going to get this great new body. We can go cliff diving without a parachute. I mean, is that the best that we have? We can do um, you know, miraculous things that we can poof, disappear, show up someplace else. I mean, is that, is that the end of the hope? Of course it isn't. The hope, the greatest hope, is that we would be in the presence of God forevermore and free from sin, free from bondage to sin, free from the, the, the imminent risk of death that we all will face. None of us can escape it. But the hope is also something that actually isn't just when Jesus comes back and everybody's changed in the twinkling of the eye. The hope is something that's entered into this present reality. When Jesus was physically raised from the dead, it changed how the disciples lived their lives. And it should change how we live our lives. There's a great, famous uh, scholar, uh, G.K. Chesterton, who lived... uh, back middle of the, uh, the last century. And he says this about the resurrection. On the third day, the friends of Christ coming at daybreak to the place found the grave empty and the stone rolled away. 
in varying ways, they realized the new wonder. But even they hardly realized that the world had died that night. What they were looking at was the first day of a new creation with a new heaven and a new earth. And and he says this, and in the semblance of the the gardener that the people of, uh, the, the women had mistaken for Jesus, excuse me, mistaken Jesus for the gardener, and in the semblance of the gardener, God walked again in the garden. Not in the cool of the evening like he did when he created the earth, but in the cool of the, the morning. I mean, there was a new garden that was springing up into life, quite literally, when Jesus rose from the dead. He was like that first seed. You know, you plant all those seeds in the garden. You, you watch for a few days, weeks, and he was that first seed that popped through the ground and said, hey, something's really going to grow here. You're not sure. You don't, you don't see it. And all of a sudden it pops up, and then the other ones start to pop up around it. And because Jesus' physical body was raised into something far greater, he's begun the, the, the regrowing of the garden that was, that was dead in sin because of Adam and Eve's first sin and all of our sins that followed. There's a hope of this new creation sprouting up. Another, another pastor says, you know, that that hope that we kind of picture in heaven and we think of as far off actually is a hope that's much more tangible and real to our lives right now. It impacts how we live our lives. He says, you know, in 1 Peter 1, we hear uh, Peter speaking of a salvation that is kept in heaven for us. And most of us are tempted to think that this salvation is something that's, that's nice, but is still a long way off. You know, we really aren't reaping any of the benefits of it right now. It's just, it's just there, and, and someday we'll get it, like, like a, a trust that you have to come to age to get. But he, says, he says that's not at all, because when we, when we hear the term heaven, in the New Testament especially, the term is often used as, as a way... As fancy word, a circumlocution. That's a nice word, isn't it? A, another way of saying the name of God, because many people in the Jewish, Jewish tradition, they were afraid to say God's name, lest they blaspheme the name of God. They knew the commandments. They knew, don't take the Lord's name in vain. So they were afraid to even say the name of the Lord. And so instead of saying God, they would say heaven. And so, you know, thanks be to heaven. Jesus even is referred to as the son uh, um, as I just drew a blank, the, the son, son of heaven, son, um, instead of the son of God, son of man, son of heaven. Um, and so this heaven, and we hear other phrases like entering the kingdom of heaven or having a reward in heaven. And we want to think of this soggy cloud kind of place as, as other, but really these are ways oftentimes of saying that we have this salvation that is kept in God for us that we will enter 
the kingdom of God or that we have entered the kingdom of God or, or we have this reward rather than in heaven in God. And it's not to say that we have this thing in another place, in a far off bank account that we can't quite access. It's to say that we have this thing in God and it's a present reality. Now, there's still a not yet aspect to this, right? We have not received that new body, but we have received that new life. We have received the promise that God will do these things and bring, bring all these things to, to bear, but also that the truth of God's life in us, the treasure that is kept for us is a treasure that we have now. This other scholar, his name is N.T. Wright. Uh, he, he has some things that he says that aren't always good. doesn't mean that a lot of the things he says aren't good. In fact, a lot of things are really good. He says, Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of God's new project. But it's not a project to snatch people away from earth into heaven. But a project to colonize earth with the life of heaven, to bring heaven down to earth, and it's already begun. That after all, this is what the Lord's Prayer is all about when we say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do do you think when you pray those words that you're only praying for Jesus to come again? And that everything else is just delayed? Into, or do you think that when we pray for thy will to be done and thy kingdom come, is, is Jesus' kingdom entering into this world right now? When we understand that Jesus, the truth of Jesus' resurrection is entering into our world right now, it actually frees us to live in a way that we don't try to lock up our peace and security on this earth. It freed the disciples in a way that they were willing to leave the comfort, the relative peace that they had in their homelands and go and suffer persecution. Paul being whipped multiple times, being stoned to the point of perhaps even death, maybe at least near death. We don't have to risk much today in the comfort of our places. But maybe we should. Maybe we should risk more in terms of our generosity to others, putting ourselves in a place where we aren't quite as secure for retirement. Maybe we should risk even in the places that we choose to live and, and, and suffer physical harm because it's a a violent place or even suffer harm because the people in that place are hostile to God and we suffer persecution like many people did in the early church. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a, a pastor, scholar who was German, lived in the time of the rise of Nazi Germany, Hitler. And he, um, is well known for his, his intellect, his preaching. And, and when he was young, he came to the United States uh, to study and to um, 
and to, to, to just prepare for ministry with the intention of going home at some point. But when the, the, the Nazis rose to power, he, um, he found himself in the United States with a choice of whether to, to go back home and to minister the gospel there, to preach the gospel there when many people in the church were, were, were just following along with the, the Nazis or to stay in the relative comfort of, of the U.S. in safety. A lot of people say that Bonhoeffer didn't believe in the resurrection. He was kind of a, a student of the German theology of the time that was questioning whether the, you know, the resurrection could have really happened. I mean, after all, it defies the rules of science, you know. And Bonhoeffer did write some things early on that said, questioned whether he was believing in that. But ultimately, he decided that he needed to go back to Germany and to preach the gospel. And I think that his decision to go back testifies that he really believed the truth of the resurrection. That there was more to this life, that there would be a physical raising of the dead, and that he was willing to give up this life because he had complete confidence in the life that was to come. He did go back. And he ministered for a while. Eventually he was arrested. About 12 days before Hitler was killed or committed suicide, he was killed. Bonhoeffer was killed in a concentration camp. Through faith, he went back to practice because of the hope that he had, I think, ultimately, in the truth of the resurrection. If we really believe in the resurrection, it changes the way we live our lives, what we hold on to, what we seek, what we want out of this life. Heaven enters into this life, and we realize that in heaven the pianos are going to be tuned, <laughs> the guitars are going to sound good, and our voices, I think, will actually be in tune with all those instruments as well. I'm hopeful for that because I know I'm often a lot of times flat. But this is a freeing thing for us. I mean, let's live life in light of the resurrection. Let's pray. Father, will you make this reality of the resurrection real in our lives like it was made real in the lives of the disciples, the apostles, even perhaps Dietrich Bonhoeffer and many, many Christians who have gone before us. May we hope in that and change the way we live in that hope. Open our minds that we would understand the truth of this, your word, your scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen.